Welcome, 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 everyone, to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. This is your host, Ali Tabibian. As always, you'll find more information about me and this podcast series in the show notes. This episode is very special because it's the first one where we take flight, so to speak. In our last episode with Amy Davis of Cummins, we talked about the two biggest challenges by far in the world of transportation, the emission of air pollution and greenhouse gases from engines. That conversation was mainly land-based. It was about commercial vehicles, things like Amazon delivery vehicles, buses, and 18-wheelers. However, a portion of the Cummins episode touched on electrolyzers, which Cummins sells to people who then use it to convert water to clean burning hydrogen for fuel. One use case for this hydrogen fuel is an aircraft, and that is what this episode with Universal Hydrogen is all about. They have some unique solutions for how to shortcut the infrastructure bottleneck for hydrogen delivery and a very elegant manner for retrofitting the aircraft they serve. Universal Hydrogen is a bit of an Airbus spinoff, with much of the leadership having met at that famed aircraft manufacturer. In that sense, UH2 is differently staffed, if you will, compared to many of the startups we've interviewed for this series. That is, it's a group of very accomplished big company executives giving up some pretty lofty purchase to bring forward what we all hope is a greener future. One example is our guest John Gordon, who is a former executive at Airbus as well as United Technologies, the large aero-industrial conglomerate. He is a company co-founder and leads partnerships, government affairs, and legal matters for UH2. Without further ado, let's get to it. Tech. Cars. Machines. Subscribe here or at techcarsmachines.com and gtkpartners.com. Our guest today is John Gordon with Universal Hydrogen. John, welcome. Thank you, Ali. It's great to be here today. We appreciate your time. Let me ask you, uh, it's always, this is a, one of our podcasts in the era of COVID. Where are you normally and where are you today? I am in Brooklyn in the neighborhood of Greenpoint. Uh, although we're based in Los Angeles, I've been commuting back and forth. Okay. And is that commute a sort of a permanent fixture of your time with Universal Hydrogen or a COVID-driven one? I first started working, not to jump into the biographical, but I, I first started working with Paul Aramenko, our CEO, when mm-hmm. he founded uh, A-Cubed in Silicon Valley, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. There was a brief period of time where, he, where we were both at United Technologies and in the same city. Now we're split again. I'm pretty loyal to Brooklyn. Uh, my son's in school here, so right. I'll be here for the time being. But most of my most of my role at Universal Hydrogen has me, will have me traveling quite a bit. And I'm always happy to get out to the West Coast. I'm I'm from Seattle, so it's always nice to be back on okay. the West Coast. Okay. Well, look, I mean, your ability to do your work uh, from a geographically dispersed manner is uh, kind of a nice place to segue into just what does uh, Universal Hydrogen do? I know the name gives it, the hydrogen part probably gives us a clue, is uh, maybe the universal part that gives us a clue, but just take us into, give us the elevator pitch, if you will, of what the company is all about. We have a very simple goal, which is to completely transform aviation and take meaningful, significant steps towards reducing aviation's impact on climate change. That's where we started as a company. We're all former big aerospace people with time at uh, at Airbus and Universal, uh, sorry, United Technologies and, and other air, uh, aerospace companies. We have a shared frustration with the uh, lack of progress our industry is making to combat climate change. 
you know, our industry is supposed to be the, uh, we're supposed to be the rocket scientists. We're supposed to be the aerospace engineers that solve hard problems. And uh, we were all very frustrated. We spent a lot of time as a team and individually trying to change the industry from within. Paul did a lot of work at, at Airbus to push it towards cleaner fuels, as well as towards uh, the electric aviation, such as the EFANX program, which was with the largest demonstrator of an electric plane to date. And when we left UTC in connection with the Raytheon merger, we set about to create a company that would really address aviation's impact on climate change in a real meaningful way. So I want to start with that because that's our goal. That's everything we're trying to accomplish. We came to the idea of hydrogen as a clean fuel for, for aviation. We weren't hydrogen people. There are people that have been doing hydrogen for a long time. In fact, hydrogen has been part of aviation since the 50s, and the Russians flew a hydrogen plane in the 80s. Our former uh, sister company, Pratt, was working on a hydrogen uh, engine in the, in the 50s. I think it's the 50s. You might want to check me on that. Uh, might have been the early 60s. Uh, and the Russians flew the Tupolev in the 80s. So hydrogen is, is not new to aviation. We embraced it because we think it's the, the only real fuel that can significantly reduce uh, aviation's impact on climate change. So, so what are we doing then? You know, that was a bit of verbiage. What are we actually trying to do? It ends up being quite simple. You know, we the first thing we're trying to do is we're trying to make a, a commercially relevant aircraft that flies zero carbon using a hydrogen electric powertrain. For that, that's using existing off-the-shelf technology. We settled on the regional turboprop as the biggest plane that we could do to have a meaningful impact on aviation. And that's the, the Dash 8 made by the Canadian company De Havilland or the ATR-72 made by uh, JV between Airbus and the Italian company Leonardo. Um, so that's part one of what we're trying to do is to get a meaningful hydrogen-powered zero-carbon plane in the air. And the second part of, of what we're trying to do is to make it a feasible alternative for airlines. And what that means is that just like Tesla, we had to solve the infrastructure problem. And we do that with, we think, uh, a fairly simple solution, though the, though the execution is quite, quite complicated and the engineering is quite complicated. Um, we've made the hydrogen modular. So we've designed a capsule system that pops into the airplane. Paul likes to analogize it to Nespresso. I think SodaStream might be a better, an easier, uh, a better analogy because the SodaStream bottle is, is reused, unlike Nespresso capsules. But we've designed a very lightweight, simple container system where we can fill up the capsules offsite at a source of green hydrogen. We can ship them by using the just the regular storage containers and deliver them to airports all over the globe so that our planes uh, can can fly, can land, can refuel, the capsules can go back and be refilled. So what we've done is we've taken a holistic approach to the problem, essentially to remove the excuses to hydrogen aviation. You know, this, there needs to be infrastructure, there needs to be pipelines, there needs to be storage vehicles, the, the, the airports need to dramatically change. All of that's removed with us. We've taken care of uh, the end-to-end -end logistics of hydrogen aviation. So that's why we call ourselves universal hydrogen, because we're not just focused on the plane itself. 
we want to be a, a logistics provider as well. Interesting. That's very interesting. For our listeners who, uh, for example, last uh, couple episodes before the publication of this one will be focused on trucking. In the trucking commercial vehicle transport, people tend to think of the displacement of the engine as one way of the classification of that field. So sub two and a half liter would be classes one through three, which is kind of the pickup market. And then the 10 and a half, 15 liter engines would be class eight, which is the sort of the 18 wheelers or the semis on a North American highway. Nobody else really has something that big. Help us classify the aviation market. You mentioned a turboprop. Mm. Is it by gross uh, gross takeoff weight, number of passenger seats? Uh, how do you segment that market? Yeah, I would I would divide it into three. General aviation, your smaller planes, 10-seaters around that, uh, distances of uh, 250 to 500 nautical uh, miles, sometimes longer. The regional turboprop market is sort of in the center of that. You're talking about uh, around 1,000 nautical miles for most routes and a passenger load of around 40 passengers, 40 to 60 passengers. And then you have the single aisle segment, which is your, you know, your large jet engines that are traveling across the country, transatlantic and whatnot. Um, so we're focused right in the middle of the aviation segment in what is a fairly big and important market for a lot of uh, for a lot of countries that have dispersed populations. In the U.S., the regional turboprop market exists in Alaska, in Washington State, where I'm from. In Europe, you see it in Norway and in Iceland. Uh, you see it in New Zealand. So really, really dispersed populations find 40 passengers and, and sometimes cargo as well. It's a great segment for us because it's, um, it's a large plane. It's kind of um, right below the single aisle, which is your typical commercial traffic plane. And... Because of its global reach, it allows us to demonstrate hydrogen's efficiency for aircraft globally at scale. And we think that creates a great message to the single-aisle manufacturers, Boeing and Airbus, that hydrogen is feasible, that people will fly it, that the logistics can be worked out. I see. I see. So that's really interesting that there is your your first point of attack, although a a sub-segment of the passenger, primarily passenger aircraft market, is global in nature, that you can go to any continent, remote regions of a continent, major airports on on any continent, and there will be aircraft of this type flying in and out on a a regular basis. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's that's very- Every single continent, you know, so we can have a global impact immediately. And a lot of these routes can't be served by other aircraft or other means. You know, you're talking about flying to, I'm going to butcher the name, the Scotch fans have to have to forgive me, but Isley, you know, an island off the coast of Scotland or, or um, you know, a remote destination in Alaska where you can't lay, lay train tracks or something like that. It's not feasible. So it's a very steady market and it's a market that is, I don't know the right word for it. I want to call it domestic in that if you look at an airline like Vitero in Norway, their domestic flights are regional. So we can go to a to a country like Norway and say, we have the ability to take your domestic airline, your domestic flights and make them zero carbon. We can say that to Alaska or to Washington State. And not only that, through hydrogen production, they're going to, ca- instead of importing jet fuel, they're going to be creating the means of energy within their own country. 
so this has the ability to transform countries and uh, and create a new kind of economy. And of course, with our with our modular system, we hope to eventually be able to fuel other vehicles as well: heavy trucking, maritime, rail, certainly smaller aircraft, EV tolls, so-called air taxis. We've already had a, a number of transportation providers reach out to us because we, you know, we. We are able to take their their vehicle and and provide the infrastructure for it to work, which again was that was the big challenge of electric cars that Tesla needed to solve, and we're trying to solve that not just for the regional turboprop market, but for for all hydrogen vehicles. That's where you get the universal hydrogen. We want to be a right. universal There's universal that. provider. What are the alternatives for uh, fueling aircraft? Is it either Fossil-based versus hydrogen, or is there any other, uh, or for example, like the other environments, is there a direct battery solution as well? Yeah, I mean, hydrogen ends up, you know, uh, being kind of the, aviation ends up being sort of the killer app for aviation. When we were out raising funds, investors always asked us, you know, why why can't it just be batteries? Right. (laughs) And so, um, so JP Clark, our CTO, did the math of what the battery would look like. And uh, to me, it's like you'd have to have the plane and then another plane with the battery in it. I mean, these are so big and (laughs) and so heavy. And, you know, maybe the technology, I hope the technology improves uh, over time. Some people think that uh, and I'm not I'm not an engineer. Some people think that it's not the physics just doesn't work for aviation because there's so much power needed. But even so, you're talking about, you know, decades from now. And I don't know if I said this at the onset, but our plan is to be in commercial service in 2025. You know, if we're going to meet the Paris Agreement targets, we got to start now. We can't. Uh, this is the problem we, we faced when, when we were in big aerospace. You can't just keep kicking this down the road. You right. know, what works now and where can we make a meaningful difference? And the only real solution for aviation is, is hydrogen, other than smaller planes, though the evil EV tolls and whatnot. But there's a, a very strong argument that hydrogen is the right solution for EV tolls and smaller planes as well because of the cost, because it's purely green and because you get fast turnaround times, right? I used to be the general counsel of an on-demand helicopter service. And when we thought about putting EV tolls in our market, it seemed like a fiction because there we were on, you know, on top of a building in the middle of Sao Paulo. And how do you recharge an EV toll quickly on top of a building? But with universal hydrogen, you can just pop in a capsule and you can have a very quick turnaround time. So that's not to say that the battery can't, power EV tolls and it's not an effective solution. It might be, but for, if you're talking about large aircraft, it's hard for us to believe there's any other credible solution in the next couple of decades. Interesting. You mentioned infrastructure a number of times. Take me through the process. How long did it take to, uh, for you to, to come to the conclusion that you wanted to be capsule based as opposed to being able to retrofit a plane? Yes, but have a typical fuel delivery infrastructure, a pipeline or a, a fuel delivery vehicle deliver the, the hydrogen in bulk and have the plane fuel up using, you know, its traditional fuel tanks, retrofitted presumably because of sure. the pressure. Uh, sure. to, to what extent was it like, okay, we're going for capsules versus everything else that you might be able to do to, to build it around hydrogen for some subset of the aviation market? We knew we had to solve the infrastructure problem at the same time. 
in discussions we had, our former lives, former careers, that was always the excuse to hydrogen. There was no infrastructure. You know, the related point to that is it's going to take so much time, money, and effort to build a proper infrastructure for hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And it's going to have to be a government-level-led or at least related effort. There are something like 17,000 airports, commercial airports, to link all of those, at least in proximity to pipelines. You're talking about a trillion-dollar effort mm-hmm. that takes decades And this has been not the goal. We're going to do this. This has been the excuse. Right. So we wanted, we had to remove the excuse. Our work though, I don't think we've talked much publicly about, about how, you know, our thinking evolved on, on the aircraft and the system, but we started with, with the aircraft and we started with the problem that hydrogen is, it's incredibly powerful, but it's also incredibly large, (laughs) So we had to get it down to fit into the plane. And it's, you know, we thought about every configuration you could think of, of where to put the fuel, where to put the hydrogen, how to make it more compact. And it was really JP Clark who thought more and more about the storage containment and having the storage container have a very high mass fraction, be both lightweight and take a very high pressure. Of, of hydrogen, as well as be able to be able to do uh, cryo, so-called liquid hydrogen as well. There was some magic moment, and I, I don't quite recall where it was, maybe one of my co-founders remember, where we realized that we had made the perfect container on the plane and that we could fill that container up. In fact, we should fill that container up at the source of production. Right, because you don't you don't have energy loss, you don't have pressure loss, you don't have the difficulty of transferring pressurized hydrogen from one vessel to another to another. When we figured that out, you know, it was one of those brilliant moments you have as an entrepreneur that this is actually our business. It wasn't what we were thinking of, which was the aircraft. It was this idea of the modular delivery of hydrogen, and then all of the benefits of that kind of flowed. We could source green hydrogen at off-peak hours in locations far from the airport. We could take advantage of cheap cheap power coming off dams on, on Christmas Eve, these sorts of things. We could, we could also be a containment, a storage vessel for excess capacity of hydrogen. Right, because you're you're producing hydrogen when on a when there's sun, when there's wind. Where does that energy go? Where does that hydrogen go? Our storage would be on site and capture all of that. And then we realized we could make the capsule form factor of size and dimensions that it could fit in a standard container as well as in the plane and could be moved efficiently because of the similarities in size uh, in the intermodal network and then be put on the plane. That that was the ev- evolution of the thinking. It it started from the practical problem of, you know, how do we fit the hydrogen on the plane and how do we get the hydrogen to the plane? And, and in one, in one moment, we realized that we had the answer for both. I'm sure that was a great moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quite a, quite a relief probably at that point. Let me ask you, uh, John, if you don't mind, let's follow the hydrogen as a way for people to understand the, the material flow to uh, maybe a little bit more in a granular fashion, understand what uh, universal hydrogen is doing. So let's say we're, we're sitting here, let's just say San Francisco airport. 
where is the hydrogen production facility in your mind? Where would it be? Or, or do you have an actual example you could, uh, you could give us? Yeah, I always like to take Washington State because there is a regional network up there and it's maybe more illustrative of the complexity. So if you if you let me switch locations. Not at all. You know, I know I'm from Seattle, so it seems biased. I went to I went to high school in Lake Oswego, Oregon. So it's a good spot for me to go to. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. So you then you'll be familiar with with this. And I, I just I just think it's a really it's a really clear example. So there's a regional operator in Washington. I think it's called Horizon. It's yes. a, a subsidiary of Alaska mm-hmm. Air. And they fly from Seattle to uh, 30 or 40 different cities across the Pacific Northwest. And they're not large cities. They're, it's Wenatchee and Cleelum. Portland is, is probably the one most, most listeners right. have, have heard of. But Walla Walla, uh, you know. Walla, Walla exactly. Uh, maybe Boise uh, is yeah. a little bit one of the further out ones. But it's a lot of these small uh, small towns. Uh, uh, and you go north up to, to Vancouver as well. So you look at this, you look at this, uh, maybe, maybe in your mind, you can visualize the map of Seattle at the sort of the hub of this network and, and 40 different spokes radiating out across Washington and uh, the Pacific Northwest. Then these planes need to get out and back and they have to move on the, from, from spoke to spoke as well. So you really end up needing to have the capsules or, or, or fueling stations or a fueling option at each one of these points, right? Across a very diverse network, a lot of different terrain, a lot of different power capacities at the airports. And it's true, Seattle, you know, might be able to host electrolysis, the, the creation of, of hydrogen. But for a lot of these airports, it's not going to be practical. It's not going to make sense from a cost perspective to make 40 hydrogen production stations across Washington state. So instead, what we would, what I envision is, is uh, you need to look for in the region where the big green energy production is. In Washington, you've got the Grand Coulee Dam, tremendous hydropower uh, plant. So we could go, we, one of our production partners, we don't, we don't plan to produce the hydrogen, but to partner with people that do, but our production partner could set up an electrolyzer there at Grand Coulee Dam. And they basically need two inputs, electricity that comes from a clean source and water. Grand Coulee Dam has both. We can set up a production facility right next to them and we can fill up our our storage containers and then we can put them on electric or hydrogen powered vehicles or trains um, to deliver all across the network so that when the planes fly, they arrive in Cleone, they arrive in Wenatchee, they arrive in Portland, our capsules are there and the capsules load on and off the plane with a simple forklift. <laughs> it does look a lot like an espresso. It's designed to be easy and safe, right? The hydrogen, I say safe because the hydrogen is contained in a very advanced, very strong capsule. It's literally bulletproof. Uh, it's designed for FAA and Department of Transportation uh, standards. And so it's in a very safe, contained environment with sophisticated sensors. So we know how it's how it's behaving the entire time. We're able to take a network and source the hydrogen in the efficient place here in the Grand Coulee Dam, but then disperse it across the network. Ali, does that paint the visual picture of how this will work? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It, it absolutely does. And I guess the capsules that are being loaded at the dam or being filled at the dam are the exact same physical capsules that are being inserted into exactly. the, the aircraft, right? So it's almost like a, your uh, backyard barbecue where you go to the go to Safeway or wherever you go and, and swap out the capsule. 
right? Uh, I mean, it's as simple right. as that, really. Exactly. It's as simple as that, except it's it's a tank that's, that's uh, you know, we've got a couple patents filed on it. It's a multi-layer composite tank. It's super light. It's super strong. Um, it's got uh, sensors inside of it, outside of it. There are two capsules on a frame. It's an advanced version of a of a propane tank, or hey, how about a, how about a keg, a beer, or, <laughs> uh, or uh, if you want to go back further in American history, a milk bottle. You know, there you um, go, milk bottle, so, or the right, or the or the cider barrels that uh, you know it, go exactly. from west to east. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> from, so of, from Washington, actually. Yeah, exactly. You know, sometimes the um, the you know the 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 simplest solutions are are the best. Occam's razor ends up being true most of the time. Right. Right. So, well, uh, let me uh, let me ask you this because one thing that uh, our listeners will have heard in my intro is that you know, in addition to being the co-founder of Universal Hydrogen, you also are the general counsel and handle government affairs and partnerships. Since we we've now visually gotten into the position where you're putting this tank now into an aircraft. Tell me what kinds of things the government will care about, as well as presumably the passengers uh, will need to be uh, calmed uh, about when this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When this, uh, right. The most important stakeholder here on certification are the FAA, which I think most of your listeners know about, and uh, EASA, which is the European version of it. The key to understand about our approach that's that's different than I think most most approaches of, with of a project of this scope. This transformative for the industry is that we're doing a retrofit of an existing plane. So the plane has already been certified Mm -hmm. and we're trying to make as few of changes to that plane as possible so that the FAA doesn't have to look at hydrogen aviation and, you know, worry about everything the wheels, right, <laughs> the seats. Right. We're trying to get them focused on the three aspects of our powertrain that are new now. And I just roughly explain, uh, divide those into the electric motor. We're not making our own electric motor. We're working with a Seattle company called Magniax, who's at the forefront of this. Their motors have flown in uh, a lot of demonstrations, including the e-beaver, they're retrofitting seaplanes. I mean, they're fantastic company and then we're using our hydrogen fuel cell provider as a company called plug power plug is a public company they're very well known in the industry their their fuel cells are already out in in warehouses all over america and walmarts and amazons powering forklifts these are fuel cells that are in use they're not science projects and then we have our storage tank and then in between there's lots of uh, heat management and all these sorts of other systems that accompany the, the the powertrain. But that powertrain, that engine, is the only thing that we're really changing uh, in the plane. Was there's a wider door? We increase the size, the width of the galley door, so the capsules can go in and out through the galley, the old galley door. But for the most part, we're trying to minimize the amount of things that the regulators need to certify because they go through a very thorough process, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a three-year process to certify and approve the retrofit. And we've already started that process. We're already working with the FAA. We're in their advanced innovation center. We have as our advisor on the FAA process, uh, Carl Burleson, who's had one of the longest and most uh, impressive careers at the, at the FAA. He was uh, acting deputy uh, administrator for some time. 
and Arjun uh, Garang as well, who was the former FAA chief counsel. So we've put together what we think, and uh, Jim Vasaka, I should also mention, uh, is a head of our certifications, one of the former heads of certification at Boeing. So we've put together a dream team of, uh, you know, I think it's, I mean, it's not your typical founder group, startup group. Uh, it's it's a bunch of guys with uh, and, and women as well with long history in the industry who have been doing these sorts of projects for, for decades. So we think headed into the, the certification process, we have the right team, both on the regulatory side and the engineers to make the FAA a real partner. Having said that, it, it's going to be a three-year process, and we're going to need to prove the safety and the resiliency of our systems to the FAA. You know, that's, that's sort of part of the challenge of, of what we're doing. Overall, on the safety of hydrogen, I think that there is, there is a lot of work that we need to do, we'll need to do to make people safe with the new fuel. I think the, the, the capsule storage system is really helpful for that because we're containing the hydrogen from the source of production. It's through through the entire um, flight. It doesn't have to be moved from one vessel to another, uh, introducing potential human error at each time you, you move it from one source to another. I think that's the opportunity. And what is the benefit of this? It's zero carbon aviation. It's not a it's not a 1% reduction or a 2% reduction. Right. It is zero carbon aviation. It's flying without a carbon footprint. And it's flying without any of the other kind of stuff that happens when you when you burn fuel as well. It's a it's the only byproduct of uh, our planes is water, you know, so right. pure that you could drink. <laughs> it's, right. it's it's pretty amazing if we can do it. And if we can do it and if we can get the certification, we can prove safety. We can prove that it's it's uh, it's a great way to fly that's cleaner. And maybe the electric motor, motors will be nicer to listen to than the, than the combustion right. motors. You know, I think people are going to be going to embrace this. I really do. That's excellent. Hey, John, one last visual on what happens inside the plane. I mean, presumably... These aircraft currently have tanks where they store jet fuel. Are you removing those tanks and inserting your own capsules, but you got to go through a different door, uh, so to speak? Is that why you're expanding the uh, the galley yeah. doors? Uh, tell us. Uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, uh, hopefully I can give the listeners a clear idea of what we're doing here. And I would say, you know, anyone can Google universal hydrogen. You can hit the image search. And uh, you can see uh, uh, engineering rendering of our plane. We've been pretty open about about what we're doing. If you visualize a um, a regional turboprop plane, it looks like a small jet. You know, it's, it doesn't look like uh, a Cessna or something like right, this. It looks right. like a real real aircraft. Uh, one of the only differences uh, from a typical jet is that the wings kind of extend from the top of the fuselage, and it has one engine on both sides. And the engine is quite large. The landing gear is in it, but the entire engine assembly is called the nacelle. It's a big, big rectangular box. So on these planes, what we're doing, you know, you board from the front and they have the galley entrance where they bring in the beverages in the back. And then the, the tail of the plane is the cargo area. There's no underbelly on this plane. Like uh, you're used to with a, with a jet where they're storing uh, bags and whatnot in the underbelly of the plane. That doesn't exist in these planes. So if you look at the, the plane, what we're doing is we're leaving the rear cargo area in the tail completely unchanged because we need, it's very important to the commercial operators that they can store luggage and whatnot. You know, you can't take that away from them. 
Right. But what we are removing is we're removing the rear galley and then we're removing two rows of seats. Mm-hmm. And then we're putting in a new partition between that back area and the planes in the front, uh, the seats in the front. And then we enlarge the galley door by about, a, about twice as wide. And then in that back area, we put three of our modules, each with two capsules each. So they're capsules. They're these, they kind of look like two scuba, tank, scuba tanks stacked up on one of each other in a frame. There'll be uh, three of those slid in. They'll be connected to uh, the plane. So that's what's going on in the fuselage in the, the actual body of the plane. There is then a pipe running from that container, uh, that back area out to the wings, to the nacelle area. Now we take the combustion engine in the nacelle and we remove it. And in that area goes most of the, most of the powertrain, the MagniX engine, the plug power fuel cells, and the uh, heat management systems are all in what used to be the gas burning engine. There is so much space in there um, once you take everything out. And thankfully, the motors are actually quite small. They only take up about uh, maybe uh, less than a quarter of that space. So much of the powertrain is going to be in the nacelle. The actual body of the plane won't be changed. What happens to the, the, the fuel tanks? The fuel tanks are currently in the wing. You know, you can't put hydrogen in those fuel tanks. You can't get enough in it. And then you have fall back in your infrastructure problem. So we're actually taking those fuel tanks and we're going to keep them as part of the system. But we are going to store the water that comes off the fuel cells in those old fuel tanks. Because if we're, you know, if we're, if we're over a neighborhood <laughs> or we're at an altitude where contrails uh, will form those, those pretty streaks uh, that look like clouds, those actually contribute to um, global warming. They have a greenhouse effect. So the idea is that we will store the water in those tanks until we're able to safely uh, and responsibly discharge the water. That's the plane. It's it's actually a very unique and very simple, simple approach. If I can give you one more comment on it. If you look at the plane from the outside, very little has changed. But if you focused on the nacelle, you'll see um, on the side of the of the engine, we've added zero drag radiators, which is the old Panther P, I forget the number, 32, P-52 uh, Stingray. It's, it's an old World War II aircraft uh, radiator. Um, so we're history buffs and kind of aviation nerds. So we realized that would be really cool to uh, to use as our radiator system. But other than that, it just looks like a typical plane. And, oh, I should say that we took those two rows out. And we, there is going to be a galley <laughs> right now, in, in at least in the dash, there's two f- rear facing seats that nobody likes, right? No one likes to fly backwards. I don't know whose idea that was. But we're going to remove those those seats, and we're going to put a galley up front, so people can still have their pretzels and uh, and uh, uh, gin and tonics while they fly. <laughs> Critical. Um, that's pretty interesting, and and presumably all of this works economically as well for the for the aircraft. Like losing those exactly. two rows, yeah, uh, certainly cheaper than buying carbon offsets for every uh, every flight, probably. And yeah, I mean the economic model. It, it makes a lot of sense for them, uh, for the airlines. First of all, how much is the conversion going to cost? You know, every every 
five years or so, these planes uh, get new engines. And uh, so we would just work into the typical engine replacement cycle. Our dream is that we'll be able to finance that conversion. So the airport, the airplane won't, won't be out of pocket at all. We want, uh, so the airplane airline won't be out of pocket at all. We want to, to make it cost efficient for them. And, uh, you know, some airlines would probably just like to handle that themselves with their own, their own people, but we'd like to be able to do it on a financed or, or, or a cost basis to, to encourage adoption, um, as far as the the actual cost of flight, airlines use something called cost per available seat mile to judge their profitability. And the short of it is that the the chasm cost depends on the cost of electricity that goes into the electrolysis. That's the big variable here. That's why sourcing hydrogen in an efficient manner becomes so responsible because if we can get that cost, I, I'm probably going to kind of mess up the dollar amount, but if you're looking at $2 per kilogram or less, then I, I think at that level, we're, we're competitive with jet fuel on a cost per available seat mile. Now, as the cost of electrolyzers go down, as more hydrogen is being made, you know, we see that going down to $1.50 or a dollar in which case, and if you add on the other side of that disincentives to bring jet fuel like um, carbon taxes, which makes sense, um, then you're, you're looking at hydrogen being a better deal for airlines than jet fuel. And then you think about some of the, the other cost savings. You know, we don't really know how much airlines are going to save in maintenance by adopting an electric powertrain. But when you're not, when you're not burning fuel in a com- enclosed space, um, you know, uh, you've seen the test, how Tesla has, has become, uh, I don't think that the maintenance costs on a Tesla is pretty negligible. And we right. hope that, uh, that airlines are able to, 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 to have the same or, or better benefits. And then also you don't have to replace the engine after every five years, the plug uh, fuel cells will, I think they also have a life of, you know, infinite. So it, it makes sense. From a cost perspective, we're working with uh, some operators now to understand their routes better and their needs and really model it responsibly. But I think we're going to find at the end of the day that it makes sense economically as well as uh, as well as for the environment, which is really exciting when that happens. That doesn't always happen. That's outstanding. Uh, something you mentioned I know will have caught the attention of the financial professionals on this uh, podcast. And I mentioned there's a quite a few sort of VC uh, PE partners who who are listeners, three years to certification by the FAA. How do you finance a company like that? What milestones do you put out between now and three years from now against which you'd like to be measured? Because as you know, typically the venture community finances to you know roughly one year milestones rather than three yeah. year uh, three year milestones. It would be actually great to talk about the the, the journey uh, on, on the financial side. And I know you've got some very impressive. And really surprising investors, like I didn't expect it Kotu to be in the uh, in the mix here. But just take us through what was attractive, what were some of the hurdles, and how did you how did you basically structure around them? Yeah, and I, I have to correct, I misspoke. Um, it's four years to certification, so we'll be four certified years. in 2025. I think of it as in three segments, which I won't get into, but it's it's basically uh, four years. We'll be will be in service by 2025 uh, is the goal. Yes, uh, as a former 
private equity and a venture capital lawyer, it is hard to go to a VC or even private equity and and say, we need a couple hundred million dollars <laughs> before we uh, turn a profit. Right. And we're probably not going to turn a profit for, you know, we're not going to have a product for five years <laughs> and we're going to need hundreds of millions of dollars in that time. It is not the the software model. <laughs> right. It's kind of a shame though, because, you know, Silicon Valley was born doing these really expensive, complicated hardware. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what Intel was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just a software play. It's complicated. They were, they were, they were engineers, uh, non-software engineers, and it was hard. I think, you know, we, I, I don't know how many in, investors we pitched. We were on, we were the roadshow, uh, not the roadshow, but the, the meetings lasted, um, lasted, uh, you know, a year or so. Uh, and I think we met with everybody we could, but uh, the people that, that we have in the round, it's a dream come true. I mean, it's a spectacular round on the on the strategic side. We have we have Airbus, we have Toyota as a leader in the space. We have JetBlue, uh, my favorite airline, a very very progressive airline, and Sojits in Japan, which is a, a conglomerate. If Fortescue in Australia, my mining company, where the chairman of which has decided to dedicate his. Uh, a portion of his fortune to, to combating climate change. And then on the financial investor side, we have we have Playground and Cotu and, and a couple others. I think that these guys are visionaries. Every everybody who invested in our round, they they see a future of aviation that's hydrogen. They see that as the only way to reduce aviation's impact on climate change. Mm -hmm. And they think that we've got the way to do it. They believe that we have the right way to accomplish that. And if that's the future and we're the path to it, then this is where this is where you, you put your money. You have to have vision and you have to have, I think, patience. I think if you look at where this company has come in the last year, we're moving at light speed. I mean, this was this was an idea a year ago, and now we have a subscale powertrain built. It's functioning. You can see it on our on our website. You can see the engine, the motor motor work. We've got full scale versions of our capsules now. They're absolutely incredible, and we've got uh, a workforce that includes uh, people like Mark Cousin, who did the largest STC uh, for Airbus ever. The the Beluga, that giant plane that that right. flies other planes inside of it. Um, <laughs> So we're we just we're putting together a team. I would say that you know because of what we're working on, we're getting resumes from from people in in the aviation field that that are just phenomenal, including top people out of out of programs out of universities and PhDs. This is what people want to work on. You know the the big companies got it wrong. Aviation engineers they want to solve this problem, and uh, we're giving everyone the platform to do that. So John, is that why? You went this route as well, because look, I mean, I, uh, I'm looking at your background, University of Chicago, a couple of different degrees, yeah. Airbus, United Technologies, some pretty uh, dazzling IAC on the search side, you know, in the, in the, in the quasi software world, internet world, that those are some dazzling, uh, that's a dazzling background. What brought you and your compatriots, all of whom have fairly similar backgrounds, uh, what, what brought you to, to do a startup? Is there no other way of solving the problem? Uh, what were you? Did you have any concerns that 
it, it was just going to be too hard uh, outside of the, you know, giant mothership. Yeah. I'm going to tell you two, I'm going to tell you two stories. Sure. Two great stories. I think it's the first time I met Paul Aramenko. I had just started doing work for a cubed. I started doing work for a cubed because my buddy from law school was an IP lawyer and he realized they needed a transactional lawyer to help put together their partnerships. And, and John, what does a cube give us the, so a cube was uh, Airbus's innovation uh, center. Got it. Um, that Paul Airmaco, our CEO, started to do um, to do experimental uh, aircraft, uh, EV tolls, and other other vehicles. It's modeled on Google's Project X or uh, uh, the uh, the military's uh, DARPA, where mm-hmm. Paul was the head of the the X wing project there. Um, so an experimental uh, experimental innovative uh, center for Airbus for aviation. And uh, the first thing that I I did was I I helped them create a partnership with Uber to fly on-demand helicopters from Salt Lake Airport into Park City. Initially, we got a call from Park City saying that we couldn't fly into Park City because they didn't want the helicopters there. So the the project manager, Uma Subranian, who now is the general, uh, the CEO of Aero, a terrific private luxury airline that I'm also also, uh, used to advise on. Uh, she found a, a plot of land out in the middle of outside of Park, Park City, and then the uh, we were flying in and out of that, and the uh, the sheriff came in and, and threatened to uh, to arrest everyone that was involved in the project, and that's when I first met Paul <laughs> because I had to uh, explain to him what it meant and uh we had to call the airbus uh, general counsel together and explain what was going on and uh somehow uh he was able to convince airbus that it was worth it to take this risk to prove out the project and uh you know that was my first experience with paul and my second was that uh was had to do with the bahana project which was the ev toll that uh a cubed uh, created it was a rotator wing electric uh, taxi that went from being uh, a sketch on a, a napkin uh, to something that i was standing in front of in about a year and uh, wow. that was pretty impressive to me so uh you know i i continued to work with paul and with jason our coo and then later with jp at utc i never have had any doubt that this team can't do anything that it that it puts its mind to honestly, and uh, when we left uh, UTC when it merged with Raytheon, I mean that's what uh, we were freed. You know, we could do as a team uh, whatever we wanted, and we wanted to devote that uh, that energy, that sort of history, and that expertise to uh, to really making uh, finding a solution for aviation's impact on climate change. And it started with that. It just started with that desire and. Over you know the last over six months, we 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 created the bones of of the company, and now we have created the bones of the of the engineering behind it. It's been a fantastic journey, and we're we're well on our way now. But to think it all started with you know an idea that we all had when we were at a restaurant in uh, in uh, the West Village is uh, it's just amazing. Wow, sounds like the most enjoyable of uh, startup journeys, right? When you're doing it with a group of people. You were already the team, and you just basically wrapped it in a in a new corporate structure and separately exactly. financed, right? Exactly, new 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 investors. I mean, but yeah. we're you know we're fortunate to have the partners, Plug and Magniex, and uh, the investors that we have. They are who are enabling the team to do the work that we're doing. That's amazing, John. I mean, thank you so much for taking so much time to 
in a very understandable way, uh, sort of lay out for us what you're up to and why it matters and why your approach is, uh, is likely the right one. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Thank you, Arlie. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I enjoyed the podcast and it was uh, great to be on it. Absolutely. And you know what? We always get some feedback and comments back, et cetera, to the extent that they come from people who are likely uh, potential investors uh, in you. We'll send, them, uh, we'll send them your way. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Isn't it great to let someone else do the thinking for you? Keep indulging yourself. Click subscribe. Subscribe with a little button in your podcast app or click the three dots in the little circle or visit us at gtkpartners.com. 